This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Omaha, Nebraska, nestled against the Missouri River and close to the Iowa border. $100,000 a year. That's what you're paid? Yeah. The board of directors thinks that you're worth $100,000 a year? Well, I don't ask them, actually. It's widely known that billionaire investor Warren Buffett, one of the world's richest people, probably hails from Omaha. His holding company, Berkshire Hathaway, is headquartered here in Omaha, And once every year, over 40,000 people from all corners of this spinning globe converge to listen to Chairman and CEO Warren Buffett and Vice Chairman Charlie Munger preside over the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. It's so interesting to watch you work and talk. I have to give people hope that Warren has seven more good years in him. (laughs) Nicknamed the Woodstock for Capitalists, this year the pilgrimage of shareholders includes your equity mates Bryce and Alec as they give you the chance to learn from the world's best investors. But life has been awfully good to me and Charlie, so we have no complaints. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is What I learned at 20 is you Welcome back to another episode of Equity Mates. Coming at you from downtown Omaha as part of the Equity Mates on tour in the USA. Welcome. If you're joining us for the very first time and still trying to get up to speed, uh, you can go over and check out our Get Started Investing podcast. Otherwise, thank you for joining Alec and I on our journey of investing as we try and break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. Now, uh, while we are licensed, we are not aware of your financial circumstances. So any information on this show is for education and entertainment purposes only. Any advice is general. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited. Uh, we This is our first of our USA interviews. Mm. Uh, we went uh, halfway around the world to speak to some of America's best investors, and uh, we saw America's or history's greatest investor speak. Mm. Still haven't quite landed that interview. But this is with a fund manager, Jeremy Kokomore, who we first read his investor letter about six months ago just came across it on reddit and six months later we met him at a hotel in downtown omaha yeah it was pretty awesome so before we introduce jeremy a massive shout out to milford for sponsoring the equity mates us tour it wouldn't be possible without them milford are a leading new zealand fund manager 
and they are now available for Australian investors and advisors. Milford's flexible active management strategies and high-performing, globally experienced investment team aim to deliver strong long-term returns while managing downside risks. Now, Milford's team also invest in the same funds as their clients, and as you're here in Jeremy's interview, that is very important. So you know they are highly motivated because they're on the journey with you. Find the Milford funds on your trading platforms or at milfordasset.com.au. And before you invest, be sure to read the fund's product disclosure statement and target market determination found at milfordasset.com.au. Massive thank you to Milford for sponsoring our US tour. But Bryce, on to today's guest. Uh, tell us about Jeremy. So Jeremy pursued a career in investment management after he graduated from the University of Virginia and Harvard Business School. He also had a stint at T. Rowe Price and uh, is now the founder of Right Tail Capital. They're an investment firm that focuses on buying undervalued, high-quality businesses through fundamental research. And we really get a sense from him about uh, how Buffett and Munger actually really shaped uh, his investment philosophy. Yeah, well, without any further ado, uh, let's take you back to Omaha and our conversation with Jeremy. Well, Jeremy, welcome to Equity Mates. Great to be here. Yeah, great to see you, Bryce. So, um, Jeremy, as you said offline, you've heard on our show before that we start our interviews with a game of Biz Nerdle. Sure. The, the Equity Mates daily company guessing game. Okay. We've got five clues. Five clues. It's an, an American listed company. Okay. And after each clue, you can guess. Okay. Yeah. Or you can say next clue and we'll give you the next clue. <laughs> so clue number one, in January 2023, my stock rose over 100% after I na- announced I would use ChatGPT's AI for content creation. I don't have a ton of confidence in this answer, but I'll go ahead and say meta. Not meta. Uh, (laughs) Second clue. My first viral hit was a listicle called The 28 Funniest Photos of Cats Being Cats in 2008. Uh, Another another wild guess. Uh, I'll say NVIDIA. No. Okay, so clue number three. I am known for producing articles, lists, quizzes, online content, and videos of a variety of topics. Hmm. Next clue. Uh, According to the New Yorker, in 2014, I deleted over 4,000 early posts, uh, quote, apparently because as time passed, they looked stupider and stupider. Twitter? No. Along those lines, final one, my stock ticker is BZFD. Oh, BuzzFeed? BuzzFeed. Yes. BuzzFeed. Yeah. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah. Yes. Tough one. I remember uh, when the stock... It was 100% overnight the stock went up. Because they said they were going to use they came the chat JPT, yeah. What's the market gonna... cap of BuzzFeed? Any idea? Oh, it would be it would be a lot smaller this year than Pretty it was. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I think they actually... Because they had a news division, but I think they've yeah. announced they're shutting it down. That's a good one. You guys stumped me on that one. Yeah. <laughs> so the market cap is... It's only $84 million. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think we can hazard a guess that it's not in your portfolio. Not in my portfolio, yeah. <laughs> Are you going to go research it? No. So, Jeremy, um, let's kick off. Um, we'd love to start with a bit, of, bit of, a little bit of a background about yourself and, and how you came to found Right Tail Capital, but there is an interesting story about how we connected. So, perhaps if we want to start there. Sure. 
Sure. Happy to, Bryce. Um, so the way I originally heard of you guys and the great work you're doing is, um, you know, anytime someone signs up on my website to receive my letters or any communications, um, I'll always reach out to them and try to learn a bit about their background and their interest in investing. And oftentimes it's maybe someone I've met before or someone who saw my letter posted on LinkedIn or something like that. And uh, this one gentleman actually said he heard my letter uh, being read on the Equity Mates podcast. So I was, you know, immediately intrigued and uh, and wanted uh, to learn more about you guys. And um, there are several amazing things about it. You know, one is just the great work you guys are doing over in Australia, you know, kind of across the world. Um, but a big part of my investment philosophy, and we'll get into that, is owning high quality businesses over the long term mm. and not trying to overly predict macro occurrences, even though I want to be aware of the macro environment. And so um, in this letter we're talking about, um, which is very appropriate uh, for where we are today in Omaha at the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting is I, I spoke about how, um, you know, Warren Buffett's always getting asked about interest rates and geopolitical concerns and things of this nature. And when I'm listening to the old Q&A from his annual meetings, I can never figure out unless I unless I see it beforehand, I wouldn't be able to guess what year he's giving these answers in because he's always getting asked the same questions, maybe just a little bit of a different flavor. And you guys bounced it off each other so well, played the guest the year. Um, it sounded like it could have been 2022 because we were talking a lot about rising interest rates and the impact on valuations. And uh, if memory serves, I think it was actually 1997. Uh, so anyway, um, that's how I originally heard about you guys. Where did the, do you, I just want to know where that guy was based in the US because it's awesome that our content has actually made it over to the US. It was actually a gentleman based in Australia. Oh, there you go. Yeah, okay. so I think he had heard the podcast. Yeah. Nice, yeah. nice. Well, I think it's it's the great thing about, you know, the internet and uh, the fact that, you know, you're based in Virginia writing letters for your uh your investors, your clients, and you know us on the other side of the world can just come stumble across it. I think I came across it on Reddit, awesome. but it's, it's just awesome. like such an it, it show There's so much information out there, and so many people sharing their knowledge. You just got to start looking. Sure, sure. And since I've been, uh, you know, since I founded Rytel and I've been writing the letters, um, it's the sharing of the letters uh, and the knowledge has led to so many great friendships and relationships. And so the opportunity to sit down uh, with you guys is, you know, one I never would have dreamed of several years ago before founding Rytale. So just incredibly grateful for that. Mm. I can share a bit about my background. Uh, so I grew up in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, which is kind of, you know, down in uh, down in the southern part of the, of the United States. And, you know, maybe for some of your listeners, um, whenever whenever folks hear I'm from New Orleans, uh, New Orleans is a very unique place in the United States. There's a ton of music, ton of culture, great food. We've been there. And Bryce, uh, <laughs> are they the hurricanes? Is that is that the drink? The, yeah, the, yeah. The yeah. Drink. Yeah. <laughs> What's the strip called? Well, there's a, a Bourbon Street. Bourbon, Bourbon Street, Street. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, Bourbon Street. Bryce isn't allowed to go back there. Bryce isn't allowed to go back there. <laughs> well, I'm a massive jazz music fan, but we I went with a couple of mates who are massive uh, drinking fans. And so we just spent all oh, of yeah. our time on Bourbon Street. Yeah. Well, you can, um, yeah, you can find, you know, sort of any flavor of activity in New Orleans. Uh, <laughs> and, and in university, I, I 
brought um, friends back to New Orleans three of the four years for Mardi Gras. And we would do, you know, kind of a whole sampling. We would go to some good restaurants. We would do maybe one night on Bourbon Street. Uh, but Mardi Gras is also a big family activity as well. You know, as a kid, we would dress up in costumes, kind of like Halloween, go sit on the parade route, catch cups and beads. And um, I took my kids for the first time last year, which was a ton of fun. Uh, so it's a great place to grow up, you know, still love, um, you know, I cook jump for friends and red beans and rice and some of the great Cajun cuisine uh, that's down there. Uh, so I grew up in New Orleans, went to the University of Virginia where I studied economics and history, worked for a few years in investment banking and investment management, then went to Harvard Business School uh, during the great financial crisis, which was just a fantastic life opportunity to meet great folks from all around the world, learn with them, learn from them. And then since graduating from Harvard Business School in 2010, I've sold been focused on investing in public equities, uh, first at T. Rowe Price, uh, large kind of global long only uh, investment manager. And then for the 10 years or so before Wrighttail, I was managing concentrated portfolios, uh, most recently with Thompson Siegel and Walmsley in Richmond, Virginia. And so, uh, you know, this is what I've always loved doing. And the opportunity uh, to start Wrighttail has been a long term uh, dream of mine. And really, you know, the original premise was, look, I want to, you know, invest for as long as I can think straight. And I want our family's investments in Wrighttail uh, to be our family's primary source of wealth creation. Even if no investors, you know, were to join me or the business didn't produce any revenue, that's okay. We'll just, we'll keep investing in high quality businesses and try to pay uh, very undervalued prices for them. And so that was really the original premise behind starting right tail. And so for all those budding fund managers out there, at what point did you feel like, or how did you know, yeah, this is the time that I'm going to go out on my own? Sure. Uh, there's never going to be a perfect time. You know, if you want to do it at some point, you really need to just kind of step up and do it. And I liken it a bit to when my wife and I uh, first decided to, you know, potentially have children. And we're, we're very fortunate to have three awesome, healthy children. Uh, we have two girls, Caroline and Claire, who are 12 and 8, and a son named Will, who's 10. And I liken it to, to that thought process around having children because you can try to be as prepared as you possibly can, you know, and maybe you have some savings and you've bought a house and your marriage is healthy and all these things, but there are always going to be surprises and things that you didn't envision. And I would say the same thing with starting right tail, you know, for most of us who want to start an investment firm, uh, there's not going to be someone who shows up with a pot of gold and an answer key and says, now is the time you should go ahead and do it. But if you want to do it at some point, you just have to do it and, you know, just kind of put one step in front of the other and, uh, and try to build that dream that you've always had. Now we've, uh, touched on a few elements of your investment philosophy. Um, but it'd be great to really unpack it in detail. Um, so you go out on your own, you start right tail and you, I think you write an initial letter to your investors outlining how you're going to invest. Uh, can you give us the key points from, from that? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so I'll, I'll briefly mention the name right tail was the one name that really resonated with me. And there were really four points from it. One is if you think of a normal bell shaped distribution curve, I want the returns, the long term after tax returns to be excellent and to be in the right tail. 
secondly, I'm typically going to be investing in higher quality businesses that have already proven themselves to be exceptional or to kind of be in the right tail versus their peers or companies at large. And then there were two personal reasons. One is just, you know, similar to compounding and how, you know, a little bit of better returns can just lead to dramatic wealth creation over time, you know, and no better examples than Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And I love the process of how do we all get a little bit better or a little bit smarter, whether it's, whether it's investing, whether it's health and fitness, whatever the case might be. Uh, and then the last piece was I didn't grow up with much in the way of financial resources. And so the opportunity to manage someone else's wealth and savings and hopefully improve their financial outcomes over time is one that I take really seriously. Now, the investment philosophy um, is really just about buying high-quality businesses at a fair to below average price. And when I think about quality, uh, there are several qualitative and quantitative factors that I think about. On the qualitative side, I really want to understand what are the company's competitive advantages and why are they you know, stable to getting stronger over time. And then the way that may manifest itself on the quantitative side is I really want to find businesses that are producing high incremental returns on capital. So it's great if a business has had historical returns on capital, but what do we think about the next five years or the next 10 years? So high incremental returns on capital. And secondly, hopefully the business has a long reinvestment runway so they can take that cash that they're producing each year and reinvest it back into the business at a high rate of return. I don't have anything against companies deciding to pay dividends or repurchase their shares, and that can be fantastic as well for long-term shareholders, but I'd rather find a business that can continue to reinvest at high rates of return. Now, we're sitting here in the on the second-level foyer of the Courtyard Marriott at the, uh, what is it, the Woodstock of Capitalists? Wood, yeah, Woodstock for Capitalists. Woodstock yeah, yeah, for yeah. Capitalists here in Omaha. Is it fair to say, Jeremy, that Buffett and, uh, and Munger have really shaped exactly what you've just spoken about? They've had a, uh, a dramatic influence um, on me as an investor, uh, and even, even some things, uh, you know, in terms of how I'd like to live my life as well. You know, there are just so many things that Warren and Charlie talk about. And some of these things have kind of hit me at different points in my investing journey. You know, so recently I've been spending a lot of time thinking about Munger's, Munger talks about how he doesn't worry about the mistakes he makes because he knows that everyone's going to make mistakes and you can't really avoid them. So why don't you just kind of accept that? And, you know, over the long term, your winners will do really well. Uh, so that's one thing I've, I've spent time thinking about lately. Um, you know, I've spent a ton of time thinking about just the dramatic impact that um, a small number of positions can really have on investment performance. Um, and then they do such a great job of, uh, of keeping things, uh, simple as well. Uh, so those are a few things that come to mind, but you know, then on the life side, you know, I love Warren's point about, you know, why not, you know, have the second half of your life, you know, be better and more enjoyable than the first half, you know? And I think that has just dramatic implications for, you know, 
let's just treat each other nicely and with respect. And, um, over time that'll probably lead to, you know, more, you know, happiness and serendipity and great relationships and, uh, and things of that nature. So, uh, several, several impacts that have, uh, uh, you know, determined how things go kind of day to day at Raytail. Mm. There's, there's definitely a romantic notion about Warren's life. You know, he bought the house decades ago and has, has lived there ever since. So much so that Bryce and I are going to drive past the house at some point this weekend just oh, to nice. say it. Yeah. Have you, have you seen with. it? <laughs> Maybe I'll come with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a friend of mine swung by yesterday and showed me a picture of it. So yeah. There's a concept that we were talking about before around alignment. And I mm. think that, you know, Buffett is the ultimate mm. uh, example of an alignment between sure. investor and shareholders. Literally, I think all of his wealth, maybe except for that house, is tied up in Berkshire shares. And that's something that uh, you were mentioning offline is important for you as well with Rightail. Yeah, so several parts of how I've set up Rightail, I've tried to create uh, as much alignment with all of our investors, uh, you know, who are largely people uh, who are, you know, great friends and family members that I've known for uh, a really long time and, you know, want us to just continue to learn and invest and grow together. Uh, so from a from a fee structure standpoint, I've always been enamored by the original Buffett partnership fee structure, which did not have a management fee um, and only charged the performance fee. Um, so as I was starting Rightail, that was something that was always in the back of my mind. And I have two fee structures currently, one that is the exact Buffett partnership fee structure. And then I also have a, a structure that is management fee only, primarily to give investors a choice as to, you know, kind of what makes the most sense for them or makes them happiest. So that's that's one area where Buffett has had a big impact and alignment really matters to me. Uh, the other piece, uh, Ren, is really just around, to me, it should be sta- table stakes in this business for the investment manager to invest right alongside, you know, each of his or her investors. And so, you know, our family has uh, the vast majority of our liquid net worth invested in the same portfolio that each of our right tail investors owns. You know, so we'll, we'll win together. We'll, you know, suffer together from time to time over the long run. When we look back in five, 10, 20, 30 years, I think we'll be really happy with the results, but there's a key piece of, you know, hey, we're all going to we're all going to do this together. Yeah, it just feels like for me the most important thing when you're looking at all all of the active managers you can choose from, like that sense of alignment and like the the wins and losses are shared with the manager. It feels like the most important thing, but you don't really hear it discussed a lot. You hear much more about investment philosophy and time frame and stuff like that, but just that sense of alignment for me would be the number one thing I look at when I'm choosing an active manager. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. So let's, um, uh, in saying that, let's now drill down on your philosophy a little bit more. Um, concentration is something that I think is uh, really interesting and you uh, run quite a concentrated portfolio, uh, just eight to 15 positions, which, you know, when, when your portfolio is at eight positions, you'd have to think that's one of the more concentrated portfolios that you'd see out there. Why that philosophy and uh, how do you manage that you know, when markets are volatile like they are now? So today I am closer to the higher end of that eight to 15 range. Uh, and that's primarily just as I have been building the portfolio uh, over the last year, there have been, there have been points in time where it just seemed like the opportunity set was fantastic. And rather than get bogged down in the position sizing or the exact number of positions, I thought, you know, we had kind of a mid-teens number of excellent positions. And so 
you know, I decided to go about it that way and to just kind of keep, you know, researching those current names and to research new names as well. To get to your point around concentration, to me, this number of securities is ideal and accomplishes several different things. One is concentration really allows your winners to have a very punchy impact on performance, right? And we we really care about long-term great performance. So that's a fantastic piece of it. Another piece is most of the research that I've read over the years suggests that you still get an excellent amount of diversification, even owning what sounds like a relatively small number of securities. And so I try to have the portfolio be as diversified as possible and to have idiosyncratic investment cases for the names that I choose to own. So that's a big piece of it as well. And then a big piece of any investment management business is how one, you know, spends his time. You know, again, I think the concentration allows a punchy impact on performance while also, you know, allowing one to really focus their time on the names that matter most ultimately to the portfolio. Now, are you, uh, are you USA only when you're looking uh, at these names or, you know, have you looked at any Australian names for the portfolio? To date, I'm all uh, North America in terms of my investments, uh, but I'm always, I'm always trying to learn from other companies, um, you know, and things of that nature. So nothing in Australia, one Canadian name, but yeah, you know, really just trying to, you know, find and learn from, you know, some of the best businesses and, and managers around the world, which can be anywhere. Some high quality companies in Australia. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you like mining, a lot of mining in Australia. Right. Mining. right. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny. It's funny. I mean, one of the most formative experiences in my background was my first opportunity at T. Rowe Price, which was right after the, the financial crisis. And uh, it's a great firm with a lot of different investment styles and typically very little employee turnover. And there was basically zero turnover during the financial crisis. And so my first assignment was to cover small cap metals and mining. Oftentimes these businesses had CapEx budgets to build one mine. So they didn't have a mine in production and the budget to build the mine was often larger than the enterprise value of the business. <laughs> so they're constantly raising capital, you know, maybe, um, you know, certainly presenting the more rosy side of any projections that they have. And that was a really formative experience, you know, for me as an investor, there are lots of different ways to make money. And I know some great mining investors, but it kind of helped me realize that, you know, that wasn't where my passions or strengths lie. And, uh, and I'm really thankful for that opportunity. Equity mates, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, we're going to go stock specific with Jeremy. We're going to unpack one company uh, that's in his portfolio and also an industry uh, that's piqued his curiosity at the moment. But before then, Bryce, let's say another massive thank you to Milford for sponsoring our US tour. That's it, Ren. Do you want to give your portfolio an offensive and defensive strategy? Yes. Nice. We'll check out Milford's award-winning Milford Australian Absolute Growth Fund. Utilising the skills of Milford's experienced investment team, the Milford Australian Absolute Growth Fund has been focusing on delivering a smoother journey for investors for over half a decade. With an emphasis on managing risk and generating absolute returns, this lower volatility equity fund can play a key role in a diversified portfolio.
portfolio. The fund strives for long-term capital growth while mitigating the ups and downs typically experienced when investing in share markets. You can find the Milford Australian Absolute Growth Fund, ticker symbol MFOA, on your trading platform or at milfordasset.com.au. Now, before you invest, please be sure to read the fund's product disclosure statement and target market determination found at milfordasset.com.au. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Equity Mates in Omaha at the Berkshire Hathaway Annual General Meeting. We are here with Jeremy Cockmore, the founder of Right Tail Capital. So, Jeremy, with such a concentrated portfolio, you've got to have high conviction in, in what you're investing in. So we'd love to understand your process of actually finding opportunities and then drilling down to actually making that investment. And you spoke about car dealerships in your Q1 letter. If we can use that as a case study for your process of understanding an investment opportunity and then how you translate that to to making an investment, yeah, we'd love to hear it. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a good one uh, to talk about, Bryce. And to be clear, I, I have spent a lot of time on car dealerships uh, lately, I have several investments that touch on, you know, sort of the broader auto ecosystem have had investments in auto parts retail and the salvage industry and certain other, uh, investments. I haven't actually made an investment in a dealership, uh, to date, but the way that, the way that project really started, um, is these companies, uh, have clearly over earned during COVID because car prices went through the roof and there wasn't a lot of supply and consumers had a lot of cash in their pockets. So there's this, there's this interesting dynamic where earnings have been really high, probably too high and headline valuations are really low. So I was like, all right, that's kind of an interesting setup. On top of that, the long-term shareholder returns for the, for several of these car dealership companies, if you've looked over 20 years, they've compounded at really high rates and have had good returns on invested capital. So it's like, all right, this seems like a fruitful place to spend some time. Um, and so that was kind of how the whole project kicked off. And if we were to almost erase COVID and assume it didn't happen, and just look at the normal earnings growth that these businesses have historically produced, the valuations still seem fair, 
you know, too attractive uh, for me. So that was kind of why I, I spent a lot of time there. You know, I've talked to folks at private dealerships. I've talked to the public companies. Um, I've read their transcripts, their SEC filings, all the things I would normally do to study an investment. Ultimately, I haven't made an investment so far really for for two critical reasons. One is there is a potential long-term change to the business model that, and you mentioned the word conviction, um, I could see it going several different ways. Companies like Tesla um, have largely uh, decided to get around the dealership network and sell their cars directly to consumers. And so, as the car park starts to transition more to electric vehicles, there's definitely some risk or some evolution that could happen to the dealership business model. And given that I tend to think, you know, five years out when making an investment, that's continues to be a question in my mind. So that's number one. Number two is, you know, al- although I like the earnings trajectory of these businesses, if I zoom out and think over the long term, I do recognize that these businesses can be incredibly cyclical and that the last few years have been phenomenal. That's just something that gives me a little pause uh, as well. It's not something I would have ever really thought much about investing in, car dealerships. Car dealerships yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you kind of think of them as like old school retailers, but then, you know, you, you start talking about, you know, they've had consistent earnings growth and, and all of that stuff. And it's, it's an interesting opportunity. But anyway, yeah, not one I know much about. Uh, another company that uh, you wrote about in the, the original letter that we read uh, would have been late last year was Constellation Software, uh, sure. a Canadian uh, company and uh, a company that we really find fascinating. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the company and again, maybe about your process, how you, when you first came across it, the, the work that you did to understand it uh, and how you think about it today? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, Constellation is uh, uh, such, a, such an intriguing company with a really interesting long-term history. You know, so I, I always share with folks that, you know, several times, and, and who knows, maybe this will apply to the car dealerships as well. Several times, um, or often, I don't make an investment when I do the original research. And two reasons that pop out a lot are one, you know, maybe I end up not being comfortable with the valuation. And if I'm looking at a higher quality business, maybe the valuation just seems too expensive for me where I think our returns may not be as high as I'd like them to be. Um, secondly, you know, I find that the, the research just continues to build over time. The library continues to expand. And so I may not understand what makes a business truly special the first time I research it. I'll continue to add to that knowledge over time. And then maybe there's a big market sell-off like early during COVID or something happens to the company. And I mention all this because uh, it's, it's, um, what happened as I researched Constellation software. So for years, I had been reading uh, the CEO, Mark Leonard's shareholder letters, which are just fantastic. And I don't say this lightly, but he reminds me of Buffett. You know, he thinks very much about returns on capital and how to make great long-term decisions for the business. And so for years, I was reading these letters and I was blown away by his thinking and his discussion. I I never I I probably thought in those early years that the stock was too expensive, but the part that I was missing was or two things. One is just the incredible returns on capital that they have generated through their acquisition strategy. 
And two is um, the runway that they've had for that acquisition strategy. Um, so if we zoom out, Mark Leonard started the business almost 30 years ago in the mid 90s. Um, he's focused on vertical market software businesses, which are often critical pieces of software for their customer. And that matters because customers are less likely to switch if that software is really ingrained in their business processes. And if customers are less likely to switch, then the level of recurring revenue is really, really high. And Constellation or the business manager doesn't have to worry each year about how do we refill the revenue from last year. It's the revenue from last year is largely there. And then we can focus on either how do we sell more to our current customers or how do we go out and find new customers or how do we take these very, uh, all the cash we're getting from these awesome businesses and reinvest that cash. And what Constellation has done a couple things that, that have been really rare. One is they've been incredibly disciplined on the price they pay for the software businesses that they buy. Um, and so that there's a lot of relationship building that goes into that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of discipline up and down the organization. So that has produced just tremendous returns. I've also been blown away by most companies have some amount of stock compensation, either restricted stock or options that has some dilutive effect on the shareholder base. Constellation went public, I believe, in 2006, and their share count hasn't changed at all. Oh, really? So there's been there's been no dilution, and so that just means that the owners of the shares um, benefit. You know, there's better alignment and and benefit um, even more. And and they have a very unique compensation philosophy where uh, Constellation actually requires their managers to take a portion of their cash bonus each year and reinvest it in the shares that way. So it has created, you know, I think good long-term incentive alignment as the business has performed uh, really well. And so maybe to just kind of tie it all together, I'd been reading these letters for years. Last, you know, last summer I started researching software businesses that had high recurring revenue just to see if maybe with the market sell-off, there were any instances where a good company had just been kind of thrown out or forgotten about. And each time I was digging into a company, I kept finding myself saying, well, let me see what Mark Leonard said about this in one of his letters. And over time, the the critical insight for me was, you know, gosh, like maybe I should really just be spending more time and diving into Constellation, right? It is just a reminder for me. And uh, I've had a long-term campaign uh, in Australia that... Um Australian brokers give us access to the US market and, you know, they're slowly opening up more and more markets. But Canada, most of wow. most brokers don't give us access to Canada. And uh, hearing you talk about Constellation is, again, just a reminder that we need <laughs> access to the Canadian market. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this would be an interesting point to turn to valuation because, sure. as you said, Constellation, um, high quality business, but from a price to earnings standpoint is often seen as quite expensive. Sure. So when you were doing that work um, and you were, you know, in summer last year, you were returning back to Mark Leonard and you were like, maybe I should look at Constellation more. How did you then think about valuation and uh, what was the point where you were like, I'm comfortable with this valuation? Sure. Uh, and, and you're spot on, Ren, that the, the headline valuation um, does not 
does not jump out as extremely attractive at first glance. You know, it's not a business that trades for 10 times earnings, mm. per se. As we record, I think it's about 80 times earnings. Wow. Yeah. On my numbers, uh, it, it's it's historically been closer, like in terms of a free cash flow per share. If you look at like next 12 months earnings, it's historically been somewhere in the 25 to 35 yeah, times. Okay. So I'm looking on Google, but that's always looking backwards, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it, may yeah, be, yeah. it may be looking backwards. And, uh, you know, most years they do a lot of acquisitions. And last year they did their biggest acquisition ever. So that yeah, could, that's be, not that could yeah, be part yeah, yeah, of it yeah. as well. But your point is well taken in that you know, if you just invert that 25 to 35 times, we're talking about kind of a three to 4% cash earnings yield. Again, doesn't jump out as super attractive. So I look at several different valuation approaches, one being, um, you know, sort of recent or, you know, sort of near-term earnings multiples. Uh, But then another piece of math I do is trying to think of a stock more like a bond. And so that first piece is your cash earnings yield. And then I think about, well, how might that cash earnings grow over time? And I separate the growth into two buckets. So one is growth that can happen without any reinvestment. So two good examples there of businesses that can grow, I would argue, without much reinvestment are, um, if you're familiar with the bond ratings companies like Moody's or oh, S&P, yes, yeah. right? They're, they're sort of the gold standards. And they probably get a little bit of volume growth in most years, but then they also get pricing growth because they're the only ones around. Um, Visa and MasterCard would be another example where they've got the broader payments network. And if you believe that volumes will continue to convert from cash to credit over time, there's some natural growth that's built in, built in there without necessarily a ton of reinvestment. So that's the first bucket, growth without reinvestment. The other growth piece is, well, how much can the the business grow by reinvesting? And so there I'm thinking about how much can they reinvest and at what rate of return? And so if we were to zoom out, um, Constellation shares have probably compounded over the last 10 years somewhere in the 25%, you know, maybe a bit higher neighborhood. So they've been kind of doubling every three years, plus or minus, right? And so the math I did kind of suggested there there are two critical factors here as I think about Constellation over the long term. One is how much money can they reinvest, um, which is also a function of how many vertical market software businesses are there to buy, which uh, the company suggests there are tens of thousands of these companies. And for context for people, they've acquired, what, around over 300 in their journey? They're somewhere around 700, I believe, somewhere in that 500 to 1,000. And to your point, many of them have been, you know, small, you know, maybe five to $20 million of enterprise value. So yeah, there's that first piece of how much cash can they deploy each year? And then at what rates of return can they deploy that cash? And so if you multiply those numbers together and put a multiple on it, you can add up those three buckets, the earnings yield, the growth without reinvestment, and the reinvestment growth. And long story short, even if I assume that the returns on capital constellation generates over time naturally come down over time as they get bigger, that hasn't really happened so far, but to me that seems like a more logical way to approach the analysis. To me, it seemed um, pretty reasonable that we could get a 15% annual return or have the stock double every five years. 
And that would be a dramatic slowdown from what the business has produced historically, where it's, it's kind of doubled every three years. So who knows? Maybe, maybe it declines at a slower rate than I'm assuming, but I felt relative to my portfolio and with this being Constellation being a collection of high quality software companies that that qualified for, you know, a great spot in the right tail portfolio. Separate from that, it wouldn't shock me if at some point Mark Leonard decided to invest outside of vertical market software. That brings some concern with it, but also his investment track record has been so good. And again, I, I, I always pause before making the Buffett comparisons, but I think this company and this management team has done such a good job that why sort of interrupt, unnecessarily interrupt their history of compounding to me, they've kind of earned the benefit of the doubt after, you know, after I've done a lot of work trying to understand what makes the business special, you know, to me, the, the prospective IRR, you know, a little under a year ago, uh, was still, uh, fantastic and warranted a spot in the right tail portfolio. So Jeremy, you've, um, you mentioned car dealerships, but, uh, we'd love to understand if there are any other areas of the market that are really capturing your curiosity at the moment. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, as I think about each each year, each month that goes by, um, and I would guess that over time, I'll probably make zero to three new investments per year. I'm not I'm not turnover averse, but I think I think typically it'll be pretty low. Maybe you'll have an occurrence like COVID where great businesses with great balance sheets sell off 50% and, and that might be a time to be more active and have more turnover. Um, but really I think about a key performance indicator for me is just how many businesses am I studying or businesses that I'm taking to a deeper level of understanding. So that's kind of what I think of as, you know, each year I want that library of knowledge to be growing. Uh, so we talked about car dealerships. Another area that I've spent some time studying um, is companies that that run um, outsourced clinical trials for pharmaceutical companies that have historically had um, some long-term growth tailwinds. There are concerns today about what the funding environment will look like for new drugs, just if capital dries up. Um, that might have an impact on biotech or larger pharma companies. Um, and so again, I'm, I'm trying to take, I want to understand the businesses and, and potentially if I look out over a longer term horizon, what might the investment opportunities in these companies look like? Um, so that's one area where I've spent some time, uh, but really Bryce, it's just, you know, trying to turn over a lot of rocks and get to understand businesses better and, uh, you know, and take it, take it that way. I'm trying to, someone else has spoken to us about, uh, this outsourced clinical trials market and I was just trying to Google the company name and I couldn't come across it. Do you, does it ring a bell? No. Oh, okay. No. It does make me think how many great companies have we heard on this podcast that just we, we, has sort of gone in one ear and out the other. We need it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the um, the idea of turning over rocks, like Ren and I often sort of sit back after speaking with uh, people, on, uh, managers on the show and and just sort of contemplate what life would be like as a, as a highly concentrated fund manager spending a day just 
reading and thinking and yeah, just being curious. Just being curious. Yeah. It sounds really pleasant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what does your week look like generally? Sure. And and you hit the nail on the head. And, you know, even if I think about my university experience, I wouldn't have been able to describe it at the time. But I started out in pre-med. I ended up majoring in economics and history. And the key thread that ties it all together is just a love of learning. And so on a typical day, I try to do several hours of kind of primary fundamental research, either on an existing holding or a new company that I'm trying to get to know better. But I also try to carve out some time each day for broader nonfiction reading because I believe it's all helpful. And just the process of, you know, hopefully learning about different things. And um, if you're familiar with the concept of consilience, where it's like every every little thing kind of builds on itself and you never necessarily know where the insight is going to come from. Or if I'm reading a book on psychology or physics or whatever, maybe it'll help me have an insight on a company I've been researching. You never exactly know where those insights are going to come from. But yeah, just try to carve out a lot of time uh, for reading and, and reflection as well. Mm. Sounds nice. Yeah, Buffett has that quote, being an investor made me a better businessman and being a businessman made me a better investor. I think we can build on that and saying, being an investor made me more curious and make me being curious made me a better investor. Mm. Kind of butchered it, but you, you <laughs> yeah. get what I'm saying. <laughs> well said, well said. And you know, Munger will talk a lot about too, just sort of, you know, I find that a lot of people, a lot of people, it seems like maybe read less than they would like to. And I read a ton and I would still probably say, you know, I read less than I'd like to. He very purposefully understands that reading has had a big impact on his life. And so he's like, all right, I'm just going to, I'm going to prioritize that. And that's something I try to think about as well. And I, I think we could learn a bit from. Well, speaking of reading, um, are there any great investing resources or great investing books that you think uh, Bryce and I and uh, our audience uh, should put on our list? Sure. I mean, there's so many out there. Um, you know, when you mention investing resources, uh, there's a uh, one that I'm su- subscribed to, uh, and it's a, it's a one, it's a one man research effort called Scuttle Blurb that does just a fantastic job. He typically posts twice a month, kind of goes in depth on a company or an industry. Scuttle Blurb is someone I've been subscribed to for, you know, the last several years. And I think just does a really good job. Often I'll agree with his insights. Sometimes I don't, but it's more the process of, you know, just having thoughtful dialogue in a way of being able to read his work. So that's one that, that jumps out to me that maybe for your listeners in Australia might be, you know, a little less of a, of a well-known resource. Yeah. Beyond that, there's so many out there. I mean, I'm, I'm probably on my third time going through the podcast forms of the, of the Berkshire Hathaway annual meetings, which go from, and they start, for whatever reason, the recording started in 1994. So we almost have 30 years at this point. And, um, you know, like we were talking about earlier, where it's tough to guess the year, you know, there are always just random insights that come out as I listen to these. So sometimes I'll be on a walk or, you know, I like to run quite a bit too. And, um, and so the, that's one of my sort of podcast feeds that I go back to, uh, 
pretty regularly. So, Jeremy, we have unfortunately reached the end of our time. It's been awesome, but we do have two final questions to wrap up. So the first one is we're obviously here for the Berkshire AGM and Warren's and Charlie sit there for about eight hours and answer questions from shareholders. If you had the opportunity to get up on the microphone to ask one of them a question, what would you ask? Wow. Wow. That's a great question. You know, I think I would ask them, you know, what are, what are the things that have just kind of helped them simplify their investing approach and, and have had the biggest impact on them from that standpoint? Uh, you know, that would be fantastic to just kind of hear a candid answer around that. So I'd probably uh, start there. Nice. Well, the good news is we all have the opportunity yep. tomorrow. So <laughs> Absolutely. I'll be seeing you at microphone number 12. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And then finally, Jeremy, uh, each year we host the Equity Mates Awards and uh, it's an opportunity for us to celebrate experts that have come on the show and really contributed to helping our, uh, the Equity Mates community become better investors. And so by virtue of being on... Uh, on the show, you are now automatically in the running for the Equity Mates Expert of the Year, oh. and our uh, audience will vote at the end of the year on who they think has uh, been one of the most enjoyable interviews. Now, to help them with the uh, the process of uh, choosing who that would be, we'd love to know if you were to win and receive the beautiful glass trophy, where would you put it? That's a that's a great question. <laughs> Obviously, you know, just one. I haven't really thought about, you know, really the opportunity to just spend time with you guys and discuss investing and share a bit about how I approach philosophy and and hopefully, you know, help learn with, you know, some of your listeners and learn together. Uh, you know, that's, that's really why I'm here. Um, if I were to somehow receive the, tr- the trophy, uh, you know, I'd probably place it in, uh, you know, I work from home, have a, uh, you know, have a small office that I work from upstairs in my home and, uh, I'd probably place it there, but really the opportunity to spend time with you guys and your listeners is, uh, you know, is a great reward in itself. Love that, Jeremy. Well, uh, we're pretty stoked that we got to meet you. It's funny how these things work. Six mm. months ago, we come across your investor letter online and six months later, we're in Omaha chatting. So thank you for making the time. Oh, thank you. Yeah, just fantastic uh, serendipity. And yeah, really appreciate the work you do. And uh, yeah, thanks for everything. It's been fantastic. Well, we'll see you at the line at 4.30 tomorrow waiting for waiting to get into the, the, the uh, AGM. Sounds good. You, <laughs> you bring the donuts, I'll bring the coffee. Deal. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Equity Mates US Tour is brought to you by Milford. A massive thank you to Milford, who are a leading New Zealand fund manager, and they are now available for Australian investors and advisors. Milford's talented and globally experienced investment team aim to deliver strong long-term returns while managing downside risks. They also invest in the same fund as their clients. You can strive for a smoother investing journey with Milford's experienced active management and their award-winning Milford Australian Absolute Growth Fund, ticker symbol MFOA. Find the Milford Australian Absolute Absolute Growth Fund and other Milford funds on your trading platforms or at milfordasset.com.au. And before you invest, be sure to read the fund's product disclosure statement and target market determination found at milfordasset.com.au. Now stick around as this Thursday we've got the third and final episode of our Wealth Builders where we look at two final lessons from uh, from Warren Buffett. Uh, but as always, Ren, we'll pick it up next week. Sounds good. 
You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.